0: Okay, if you'll take a Bible out and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. I, um, in the midst of, it's been a crazy morning, it's been a crazy week, it's been a crazy morning especially, Um, I realize as I'm sitting down there singing, I did not wish the moms a proper happy Mother's Day. Um, It's kind of gotten lost in all of the coming back to church. Just Sunday morning church is just kind of all-consuming for me anyway. And then to have the first Sunday back, just totally forgot. So moms, happy Mother's Day. God bless you. Hope you guys are blessed today. Your families to do something special for you and that you will enjoy time with your mother. Moms, you'll enjoy time with your family. And um, so also in the midst of that, too, I want to just give a shout-out to my son. It's his 13th birthday today. He's a teenager today, so happy birthday, Elijah. I should have wished him happy birthday. It's the first time I've seen him this morning, so happy birthday. Um, Luke chapter 5. What do you really need? If you think about what you need, you could probably make a list. What, what do you really need need. Some things I've thought about recently. I need new clothes. I need a vacation. I need a Coke. Some of you might say coffee, but I don't drink coffee. I need a Coke. But the vast majority of these needs, I could go through the list, right? You can make your own list. The vast majority of these needs really expose nothing more than they desire to satisfy our first-world problems. In 1943, noted American psychologist Abraham Maslow identified what he considered to be the fundamental needs of every human being regardless of time and culture. In fact, I even have a slide up there. Anya, if you can put it to the slide. He made it into a little pyramid. He called it the hierarchy of needs. He categorized all of our fundamental needs... Regardless of, of time and culture. So this is to be generally true of everybody living everywhere in any, every time period. He then categorized those needs in the order of priority From the greatest to the least. So for example, he said every human being Has the need for self-actualization, has the, the need to realize their full potential in life Everyone has a need for love and friendship. We have need of security and safety. We have need for food and shelter, but the need for food and shelter is more basic than the need for love and self-actualization, right? So we start at the bottom with those most important needs, the most basic needs, and he works his way up, and the triangle there is meant to show the priority of those needs, right? We need self-actualization. We need to have a job to do. We need to feel that we're realizing our potential in this world, but if we don't have food and shelter— that need is not as important, right? It doesn't really matter that you realize your full, po- your full potential if you don't have food to eat and a place to keep you safe and warm and sheltered. So if we're looking at our needs from an earthly standpoint, I think that Maslow's is not too off base. In fact, this is one of the basic lessons I think elementary kids learn in fourth grade social studies, right? Learning what your needs really are. But if we look at these needs from our, from a cosmic perspective, then I think Maslow has it all wrong. Because there's one need that Maslow does not list on his triangle, his hierarchy. And to me, I think the scripture would point to this fact as well, that's the need that really matters. Because one day, we're all going to die. We have been confronted once again with the reality of death, In these days. Whether we contract COVID-19 and die, or whether something else happens to us, or whether we live a full and long life, we will one day die. And at that moment, at the moment of death, food won't matter, shelter won't matter, security won't matter, friendship won't matter, love won't matter, whether you realize your fullest potential in life, none of those things will matter. All that will matter in that moment is how we stand before God. And how will we stand before him? We are sinful and unholy people, and because we are sinful and unholy, we will not be able to stand before a holy and righteous God unless our sins are forgiven. And that, my friends, is our greatest need. The forgiveness of our sins. In fact, we saw this beautifully illustrated last week as we were looking at Simon Peter in verse, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. When Peter had witnessed the, the great miracle, the great miraculous haul of fish that the Lord had, had, had brought for them and it caused to happen for them, he realized in that moment that he was in the presence of God, and what did he do? It says he fell on his face, and he cried out, "...depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." In that moment, he recognized his greatest need. He He recognized the true reality of his life. Everything else did not matter in that moment. What mattered was right standing before God. He recognized that he needed to have his sins forgiven. And Peter, this is not a special case for Peter. It wasn't because Peter was any more sinful than anybody else. He is a picture. He's an illustration... Of all of us. That what we need to consider ourselves is what Peter himself said. When we come into the presence of God, it will be, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We need to have our sins forgiven. Now thankfully in God's kindness, he has made a provision for our need. This is the reason why he sent his son as the Messiah. Jesus came for this purpose. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. It is the forgiveness of sins that stands at the heart of his redemptive mission. We see that Jesus redeems his people primarily, foremost, by forgiving their sins. We're going to see that illustrated once again this morning in two accounts of miracles that Jesus did in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. They are living parables. We saw this a few weeks ago, that the miracles that Jesus does are historical occurrences. They are literal realities. These things happen specifically to specific people living at a certain time, but they are illustrations of what Jesus came to do. They are, they are metaphors. They are parables of the work that God is doing in our life through Jesus Christ. It's a picture of his redemptive mission providing for us the forgiveness of sins. So let's look at The text, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to read to verse 26. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately immediately the the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses himself commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, "We have seen extraordinary things today." We're just going to take a brief look at these two stories and consider, again, this idea of the forgiveness of sins. And we'll consider first, the story here of Jesus cleansing the leper. We see that Jesus is ministering throughout the region of Galilee. And as he is ministering, this is, again, the, the reports about Jesus are spreading. People are coming to him. They're flocking to him, looking for healing. He is approached by this man who has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a, is a general name given to a number of diseases affecting the skin. It can include things like boils and burns and itches and rashes and bumps, ulcers, things like psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, and even scalp conditions. So this man has a disease— Right? He is, he is not well. He is not whole. He is unhealthy. He is diseased. And from an Old Testament perspective, this leper is certainly sick. He's diseased, but he is more than that. Right? In fact, he comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I I, want to be clean. Make me clean. This man was unclean. So, the Old Testament uses these categories, uses two categories, clean and unclean, as a way of indicating that something is appropriate or inappropriate. So leprosy as an unclean condition does not necessarily mean that this man either contracted this disease because of a lack of hygiene, or because he lived in a filthy situation, or that because of his condition that he was, he was showing pro- improper hygiene, or he was, he was somehow dirty. He wasn't, he wasn't hygienically Unclean. He wasn't hygienically dirty. He wasn't filthy. The idea of cleanness and uncleanness in the Old Testament is really just a way of saying that something is acceptable or unacceptable, particularly with regards to worship. To be unclean means that someone would be ritually unacceptable. They could not attend the tabernacle or the temple, for instance. And if they couldn't go to the tabernacle or the temple, they could not worship God. They were cut off from God. They were hindered from worshiping God. They did not meet the appropriate or the acceptable standards for worship. And God had laid those out in his Old Testament law. He specified what was necessary for someone to come to the tabernacle or temple to worship him. Someone who met those criteria was considered clean. It wasn't they were clean because they took a bath the night before or the morning of. They had met all of the conditions. Those who did not meet the conditions were considered to be unclean. So the leper, because of his leprosy, leprosy is a condition the Old Testament specifies is unclean, because the leper did not meet the conditions of cleanliness. He was considered unclean because of his leprosy. It means that he could not go to the tabernacle. He couldn't go to the temple in this case. He could not worship God. He was ritually unacceptable. He was cut off from God, and he was cut off from the people who lived in covenant community with him. To make matters worse for the leper... He had to live in isolation from the rest of the people of God. If you want to read more about the laws of leprosy, go to Leviticus 13 and 14. This is what it says in Leviticus 13:45 and 46. "'The leprous person who has the disease "'shall wear torn clothes "'and let the hair of his head hang loose, "'and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, "'Unclean, unclean. "'He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. "'He is unclean. "'He shall live alone.'" His dwelling shall be outside the camp. We can probably relate to this guy now, maybe today, than we could have several months ago, huh? You can, when you go out, you've got to let people know, I'm unclean, I've got a disease. You've got to tear your clothes. You've got to let your head hang long. You couldn't go to the barber, right? Some of you are feeling that, looking forward to tomorrow. Had to wear his mask, right? Had to cover his upper lip. We understand this sense of quarantine. Had to isolate himself from everybody else. He was literally cut off cut off from God, cut off from the covenant community. Again, part of that may have been medical. There are some contagions that we can transmit from skin to skin. If we have a skin condition, it might be infectious. That part, so part of it may have been medical to, to prevent the spread of disease, to quarantine oneself. But the greater part of it is theological. An unclean person must not come into contact with a clean person because what would happen? The unclean person, by contact with a clean person, would make the clean person unclean. And then now he is cut off. He can't go to the tabernacle. He can't go to the temple. He can no longer worship God. He has to quarantine himself. He is cut off from the covenant community. So God established these categories for his people to identify very clearly. This is acceptable, and this is not acceptable. Now, again, you go through some of those laws, and you read the Old Testament, and you say, well, that's kind of odd. Why would this be considered clean, and would this be considered unclean? The point is not about whether those things that are unclean are being sinful, but that was the picture, right? This is a—the the categories of clean and unclean show—it illustrates for us what it means to be clean before the Lord and unclean before the Lord, what it means to be holy, and what it means to be defiled. Clean and unclean point to, they illustrate, spiritual cleanness and uncleanness. They point to holiness and defilement. Just as someone who is ritually unclean cannot approach God in worship, someone who is spiritually unclean, someone who is holy, who is defiled, who is sinful, can also, can, they cannot approach God in worship. We are cut off from God by our sin. And so the leper here, the the richly unclean leper, illustrated the reality of spiritually unclean sinners unable to worship God and cut off from the true fellowship with others because of their sin. That's what sin does. Sin breaks that relationship with God. It cuts us off from God because God is holy and we are unholy. So as this leper approaches Jesus, he not only is suffering the psychological effects of his leper's condition— He's suffering from isolation, he's suffering from, from the quarantine, he's suffering from loneliness, he's suffering from ostracism, people that are making fun of him or ridiculing him or keeping their distance from him. He maybe is suffering depression. All of those psychological effects are weighing on him, no doubt, but he's also feeling the spiritual effects. He cannot worship I know the last few weeks, what, eight weeks, seven weeks now, when you could not come to this building to worship with God's people, we tried to transmit that through a camera, through the Internet. It was the best we could do, but that wasn't it. You may, and some people told me they felt cut off. They felt isolated. They suffered a kind of depression, in part because they could not worship God, as God calls us to do, as God commands us to do. As it, is, as it is right and it is good for the people of God to do. And So maybe we're feeling his burden a little bit more personally, and we can experience and understand and appreciate more what this leper is, is experiencing. But his leprosy was an outward manifestation of an inward reality, right? The leprosy shows outside what he is and what we truly are on the inside. We are spiritual lepers we are spiritually unclean people in our natural condition we are cut off from god we are unacceptable to him because of our sin well the leper is by his uncleanness by his leprosy by all of the effects that, that brings he is well motivated to come and approach jesus we know that from what luke chapter 4 verses 40 and 41 that as jesus is doing all of these great miracles he's casting out demons he's healing the sick the word is spreading throughout the region. And this man sees Jesus as his source of hope. He sees Jesus as his only hope. And so, like many others, he comes and he approaches Jesus for help. He approaches Jesus for healing. But consider the bold, this is a bold move by the leper, right? Out of his desperation, he breaks quarantine. He breaks isolation. He comes into a public gathering when he is supposed to be keeping a social distance and he reaches out to Jesus. He seeks Jesus. He wants to be healed by Jesus. And that coming towards Jesus exposes Jesus, exposes all those who are flocking to him, exposes them to the risk of uncleanness. And so when he arrives at Jesus, he comes, it says in verse 12, that he falls on his face and he begs Jesus to heal him. The falling on his face there is a sign of of utter abasement, it's utter humility. He recognizes that he is unclean. He recognizes that he is unworthy, very much like Peter in the previous passage. He casts himself solely upon the mercy of Jesus. He says he begs Jesus. The word beg there means to implore. It It indicates some desperation, right? The Greek word here is a very strong, emotive word, emphasizing the desperation. He begs Jesus, Jesus, please heal me. You've done it for so many other people. Heal me. He does not doubt Jesus' ability, right? What does he say in verse 12 when when he comes to Jesus? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt the ability of Jesus. He doesn't doubt the authority of Jesus. He's only unsure about the willingness of Jesus. Is Jesus willing to heal him? Will Jesus do it? He can do it, but is he willing? That's the question. Well, thankfully for the leper and for us, Jesus is indeed willing. Jesus had come for this very purpose. As the Messiah, he came to heal needy people. But he came to heal them thoroughly, not just outwardly, but also inwardly. Jesus came to break the power and curse of sin that binds people from experiencing the true life that God gives So Jesus demonstrates once again that that he is the Messiah by breaking breaking sin's curse in the leper's life and restoring him to complete health. Jesus says in verse 13, I will be clean. He is willing. He will do it. And immediately the leper is cleansed. In fact, Jesus just speaks a word. The Greek word translated be clean is one word in Greek. I think of the mighty fortress is our God, right? One little word shall fell him. One word Jesus spoke, and this man was instantly healed. Luke says, immediately, right away. As soon as he speaks it, he is thoroughly transformed. But notice also that Jesus doesn't just speak the word. He actually touches the man. He reaches out, and he touches the man. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now, on one level, that just shows... The compassion of Jesus, right? Jesus is showing compassion. Many times in his miracles, he touches people to show love and empathy and compassion that he had come to associate with them. He had come to be with these kinds of people. He cares genuinely for them, just like a gentle shepherd cares for his sheep. But at the same time, this man is a leper. And the laws of the Old Testament, the laws of leprosy say that when a clean person touches an unclean person, the clean person becomes unclean. But that's not what happens here, does it? In this scenario, the clean person, Jesus, Messiah, touches the unclean. He doesn't become unclean. Instead, he makes the leper to be clean. What a great reversal. The great power and, and sovereignty and authority of Jesus, Messiah, to touch an unclean leper and make him clean. And so we see in this healing once again the the picture of the messiah's ministry of jesus's ministry he came into the world to do this very thing he came to draw near to sinful people our need was so great that god had to send him here to meet our need it was impossible for us to draw near to god we were quarantined we were isolated we were told that we needed to stay away So it's impossible for us to draw near to God, so God drew near to us. Jesus came in flesh, in human flesh. God came in human flesh in the person of Jesus, and he took us by the hand. He reached out. He touched us in our spiritual uncleanness, and he made us clean. Friends, we are all spiritual lepers. We are so thoroughly afflicted by sin. Did you notice that this, in the description of this leper, it says that Luke says he was full of leprosy. It so thoroughly contaminated him. We are thoroughly afflicted with sin, and that sin cuts us off from God so that we could not be true worshipers of God. Instead, we became the vile enemies of God. We were worthy of his judgment. But God sent Jesus into the world to be our Messiah, to cleanse us of our sin so that we might be clean and restored to a relationship with God. This miraculous healing not only demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah, but it shows us the nature of his ministry. It shows us what he came to do. Just as this leper is thoroughly transformed outwardly, as he is healed of his leprosy outwardly, so Messiah came through his death and resurrection to heal us inwardly, to cleanse our spiritual leprosy, and to make us whole once again. So if you're a Christian, this story about the leper is really your story. This is your testimony. It's an illustration of who you were and what God has done for you in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, this story points to the reality of your situation and what you really need. I don't know this morning what you think you need, but you don't need that thing. You need forgiveness of sins. You are a spiritual leper. You need forgiveness. God's cleansing and forgiveness, and your only hope is Jesus. And praise God, he's still healing spiritual lepers. He's still healing spiritually unclean people. So turn to him. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ and be healed. We're going to go to the next story. The story of the paralytic. And we see something similar happening there in that narrative where Jesus heals the paralytic. We see in verses 17 or, uh, yeah, excuse me, verses 15 to 17 that, again, the word of, about Jesus is, is spreading. Every time Jesus does something miraculous, the word seems to spread more and more farther and wider, and, and more people are affected. The report we see in verse 17 is now reaching even the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the, of the law that Luke calls them here. The Pharisees were a Jewish sect. They were concerned with piety and obedience to the law. They rigorously applied the law of God to every aspect of their life. They thought that was the way to please God, and so they took the law, they applied it, and they made level upon level upon level of, of human tradition so that they thought they were obeying the law when really they were creating their own tradition. They saw their, their traditions as just as authoritative as the law itself. The teachers of the law, or the scribes, were experts in the Old Testament law. They were experts in the oral tradition surrounding the law that applied the law to daily life. They were responsible for teaching, interpreting, and regulating the law to every aspect of life. And so as the reports about Jesus reach them, these religious leaders, they become curious. Wouldn't you not? If you heard somebody was doing healings, wouldn't you want to go check it out and see what was going on? They hear the word, they hear that this guy is doing all these miraculous things, and they're going to go check it out. They're the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. So they come from all over Galilee and Judea, Luke says, even from Jerusalem itself, to observe for themselves the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus. It's at this point in the narrative as Jesus is doing his ministry that, that some men, Mark notes that there were four of them, the four men came and brought a paralytic friend of theirs to Jesus for his healing. But since the house is packed, Jesus is ministering in a packed house, the friends cannot bring their, their friend, the four men cannot bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. They have to think about an, uncondi- an unconventional way of getting this man before Jesus. And so they go up outside to the staircase that goes up onto the roof, which was sort of like a, a patio, if you will, a second story. It's cooler up there. And they begin to remove the, saran- the, 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 uh, the, the clay roofing. The, the, Luke uses the word tiles. It was probably just simple clay over a meshwork of, of limbs and thorns and so forth. They begin to remove the clay roofing, and they get the hole big, big enough so they begin then to lower this, this paralytic friend right in front of Jesus. I would love to have friends like this, right? If I were in the situation, who would go out of their way to this extreme to take me to Jesus and have me be seen by him. And so when, when the, when the paralytic—I can only just imagine the scene, the paralytic just kind of coming down through the roof, and he's set right before Jesus. Jesus then, then speaks to the man, and he says to the man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that seems to be a little bit ironic or unexpected. We expect Jesus to say something like, be healed or be well, get up and walk. He's going to say that, but he doesn't say it right away. The first thing he talks about, the first thing he says to this man— is that your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgave the man's sins before he ultimately healed him. Now Jesus here has greater perception of the paralytic's need even before the paralytic or the friends did. They came, we assume they come to Jesus for healing, but Jesus sees a greater need than the man's healing. He sees the need for the man's sins to be forgiven. If Jesus had just healed the man in his condition, it would have just made him a more functional sinner, right? If there's no heart change, he now is able to go out and sin in a better way than he did before. They could before. But Jesus instead forgave the man because the man's real problem was his sin, and that needed to be dealt with. In fact, the paralytic's outward condition illustrates something of his inner condition. I don't want to suggest this man was paralyzed because of some sin that he committed. That could be the case, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. The paralysis is just an indicator of sin's power, of sin's curse upon this world, just like all sickness generally. We may not necessarily get sick because we've sinned, but because of sin in the world, because we are sinful people, because the world is plagued by sin, we're going to get sick the power of sins, the curse of sin still entrapping us and holding its sway over us. But this man's condition illustrates that reality. Sin paralyzes us. It spiritually paralyzes us. It saps us of life and renders us powerless and incapacitated. In our own, in our natural condition, we are incapable of pleasing God. We are spiritually immobile. We are weak and helpless. So what we need is the forgiveness of sins. When God forgives our sins, we come alive. We're able to move again. We're able to live for the glory and honor of God. We're able to honor him and to to do all that he commands us to do. So by forgiving this man's sin, Jesus not only provides what this man needs, he points to, once again, his ultimate purpose of his redemptive mission. Jesus would redeem sinful people by forgiving them of their sins. And in the forgiveness of sins, then, he restores us to the life that only God gives. Again, if you go back to the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew, the angel tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant, and he says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was the mission. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is amazing news, friends, that Jesus forgives sins. This is the good news. This is what should make our hearts well up in joy. This is what should, should sustain us. This is what should give us life, that Jesus forgives us. But the religious leaders didn't see it that way, did they? In fact, they were offended— by what jesus said the scribes and the pharisees objected to jesus's words they didn't say it out loud jesus perceives this is what they're thinking he exposes that later in verses 22 to 24 but why were they offended why were they offended that jesus would say that this man's sins were forgiven because the old testament taught that forgiveness is the prerogative of god Forgiveness is only God's to give. Only God can forgive sins. Why? Because God is holy. Sin is an affront to a holy God. God is offended by our sin, so only God can determine the response to sin. And while justice is the appropriate response to sin, God can decide by his own determination how and to whom he would grant forgiveness. So when Jesus forgives this man, he is making a theological statement. Either he is blaspheming God by pronouncing the paralytic's forgiveness when he has no authority to do so, or he is claiming to be God with the right and authority to extend forgiveness to whomever he pleases. If Jesus is blaspheming, then he should be put to death, right? But if Jesus is speaking the truth, then he must be acknowledged. They have to believe it. They must receive him as their Messiah, and they must fall in line under his rule since this is the religious leader's first exposure to jesus we might understand their skepticism here's a man pronouncing forgiveness of sins and in doing so claiming to do what only god can do there's only one god how can this man to be god or at least have the authority of god to pronounce forgiveness and so jesus proves his authority by healing the man Jesus is speaking the truth here when he says, Your sins are forgiven because we see that this paralytic is going to be healed. Jesus is going to heal him. Jesus has the, for, the, the authority to forgive his sins. But how do the religious leaders know? How does the man, the paralytic, know? How, do the friend, how does anybody know that Jesus truly forgives sins? Can you see if your sins are forgiven? That's not something we can see with our senses, is it? It's not something tangible. If, I, if you come to me after church this morning and I tell you your sins are forgiven, how do you know that is true? I'm just saying words, right? So Jesus here says, what's easier to say? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven where there's nothing verifiable that can show that sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to tell this man to get up, pick up his bed, and go home? And so Jesus tells this man, he turns to him, He says, man, rise and walk. Pick up your bed. Go home. And it says immediately the man got up, picked up his bed, and went home. And it's this healing that demonstrates that Jesus indeed has the authority to forgive sins. Anyone can run around claiming to forgive sins, but not everybody can run around doing miracles. So just like in the case of the leper, Jesus speaks the word, And immediately, once again, Luke uses the word, immediately this man gets up, he picks up his bed, and he goes home, and that healing is proof that Jesus has indeed forgiven his sins. And so now the man's new outward state, his wholeness and his restoration, testified to a new inward reality. It testified to the fact that his sins were forgiven, that he had been made whole and complete, that he had life, life from God that only God could give. The paralytic's healing illustrates the the reality of new life that we have in Christ. When Jesus forgives our sins, he restores us to new life. Weakness is exchanged for power. Disability is exchanged for ability. Death is exchanged for life. So for the Christian, the paralytic is an illustration of our new spiritual reality. Jesus came into this world. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead to forgive us of our sins and to undo our spiritual paralysis. Isn't it interesting that the New Testament oftentimes uses the word walk to describe the Christian life? Right? The Christian life is a walk. Why? Because we were once paralyzed. We couldn't walk. We were confined, we were restricted, but now we have life, and we are able to walk in this new life that Jesus gives to us. We are completely whole and clean. We are spiritually empowered because of the life that Jesus now gives us through the forgiveness of sins. For those who are not Christians, the first step to being right with God is seeing yourself for what you really are. In this case, you need to see your own spiritual paralysis that has been caused by your sins. And the remedy for spiritual paralysis is the same as the remedy for spiritual leprosy. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He will help you. He will touch you. He will give you new life and forgive your sins. It says that they went home, verses 25 and 26, glorifying God. God. The man went home glorifying God. This man was now able to do what God had created him to do, had redeemed him to do. But those around him also began glorifying God. They were filled with awe, and they, they were saying, we have seen paradoxes. That's the Greek word, paradox. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. We have seen the unusual. We have seen a paradox. We have seen a man who was paralyzed get up and walk. That could only happen by the power of God, and so they praise God. My friends, we should never grow complacent in seeing the working of God in the lives of sinful people. Every heart that is changed by the grace and power of God is a testimony to the reality that he is still changing lives. He is still working on people. He is still making people whole. And so that's why we gather for worship. We should join our voices with the voices of others to glorify God and to praise him for all of his marvelous works. Now, I'm not always the best evaluator of what I really need. Especially when I think of my own first world problems. But God knows. God knew what I really needed and what you really needed. That we needed forgiveness if we were going to endure the judgment that is coming. But God didn't only know what we needed, He provided for that need. He did something about it. Before the foundation of the world, He determined to send His Son to be our Messiah. He determined to send His Messiah into the world to forgive us of our sins and to redeem us for Himself so that we might have life and live according to that purpose. And so our response is like the paralytic and like those who witness this miracle, we are to glorify God thanks be to god for seeing our need and for meeting our need in Jesus Christ let's pray lord we do thank you for seeing our need for meeting our need for doing what nobody else could do we thank you for such great love that not only would you choose us to be your people but that you would then also send your messiah to affect that reality that jesus would come into the world that he would lay down his life he would take it up again in victory and in doing so he would forgive all of our sins and restore us to life the life that you give god there's not much we can do except to glorify you and to praise you and to walk in this new way lord help us to walk in this way Help us not to piddle around. Help us not to take your forgiveness for granted, to treat it as a common thing, but to receive it and to walk in it, living our lives to your glory, for you are worthy of it. We are the reward of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.